It is a center for higher learning. It is a place with centuries of secrets in its shadowed halls. This is where you have come to learn the mysteries of the cosmos. Welcome to the Miskatonic University Podcast. Welcome to the Miskatonic University Podcast, Episode 83. This is the podcast dedicated to Call of Cthulhu and other horror and Lovecraft-related role-playing games. I'm Keeper Murph. And I'm Keeper John. Today we will be unleashing a purple blight upon the landscape in the bestiary. And we'll be talking with Brett Kramer. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Well played. Very good, sir. So, uh, kick things off, let's go to the Campus Crier. Miskatonic University Campus Crier. Campus Crier's Miskatonic U student paper. Here we go through the mythos-related news and feedback to the podcast. This episode was recorded on July 5th, 2015. So, uh, up first, we have Brinkvision has released The Color Out of Space on limited edition Blu-ray in the States, finally, so people can order the dang thing. Man, that looks cool. So, I've never seen this film. This is that, what is it, DeFarber? Yeah, oh, DeFarber. This is DeFarber. Yeah, DeFarber. And uh, yeah. it's uh, the German Color Out of Space adaptation. Yeah, and it's wow. fantastic. If you guys haven't seen it, now you can actually buy the damn thing, uh, and not at a con. <laughs> so there's a link in our show notes. Check it out. It takes you to a page, and there's even like a little one minute clip. It looks awesome. It really is. It's so. a it's a fantastic uh, show. I have not seen it. I look forward to. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely one worth watching. Uh, Diamond showcases the San Diego Comic Con 2015 booth and events. Uh, Diamond uh, Diamond Distributions does the uh, comic book distributions, and they also have their Diamond Showcase, where they uh, have their specialty toys and that kind of thing. Uh, so anybody who's uh, familiar with comic books or comic book collecting should be familiar with Diamond. And Diamond Distribution Previews. Well, this is their toy line, and they are going to have a bunch of great Diamond-exclusive toys at uh, San Diego Comic-Con. Very cool. Which is usually really, really cool. I mean, they've, they, they've, uh, I mean, they've been doing, you know, comic toy uh, adaptations and uh, movie toy adaptations for, for years, so and they always have good stuff. Awesome. We've got a show in the a link in the show notes. You can check it out and see the uh, the different uh, creators and uh, toy lines and things like that that they're going to have out there. Cool. All right. Awesome. Uh, next, I guess, would be uh, Harrow County, which is a new co- uh, comic book by Colin Bunn and Tyler Crook. Uh, it's from Dark Horse Comics, uh, and it's is kind of up Brett's Avenue, oddly enough, and it's a comic about witchcraft in a rural country setting. Oh, witchcraft. Witchcraft. Yes. Oh, my 
I, I, I had to include this in the show notes. Uh, as a comic book collector, I'm, I'm reading Harrow County. Two issues are out. Third issue is coming out next week. Uh, Cullen Bunn is an amazing, amazing writer. Uh, the artwork that Tyler Crook is doing, it looks like it's, um, it's like a blend between uh, traditional uh, pen and ink and pencil and watercolor. I mean, it's just got this really cool look to it. Cool. And uh, it's, yeah, he's I a, mean, he's the, a cover artist as well. He's the cover artist as well. Okay, uh, yeah, those are fantastic so, covers for that. Oh my god! Yeah, um, if you look at the cover for issue one, it, it looks like there's like a a, 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 a skin a suit. Skin, yeah, skin suit. <laughs> Yeah, that happens in the books, you know. So the girl is she's found and is is talking to the skin suit. So nice. it is. Uh, it's an amazing, cool gothic horror story, and it's really. I just I wanted to let people know about it because I think this is the uh, the perfect audience for it. Yeah, that's really neat. I'll have to uh, I'll have to grab those. And uh, I wanted to let everyone know that uh, Murph and Chad are going to be doing a one-hour live show at Necronomicon on that Friday at noon at the El Apoche Room. Did I say that right? Very well. Um, yeah. Um, but also give a heads up that this uh, this uh, live show will be during the lunch time slot. Uh, so hopefully, uh, hopefully attendance will be good or bring a sack lunch or something. But... Uh, yeah. Murph, any idea on what y'all are going to talk about? Is it just going to be a regular show or I you have, know, guests lined up? Can you spill the beans on any of it? No. The only thing I know for certain is that uh, Dr. Gerard will be doing a history segment again. Um, awesome. Which was fantastic. If you actually made it to Gen Con to the live show, um, which not many people did. But if you did, um, we had the most amazing time. Um, with uh, Chad doing the history segment um, because he had props. <laughs> lots, yes, it was awesome props. to hear. Yeah, so um, it, it's even better in person, I have to admit, because it's a lot of fun. So, And we have a lot of crowd participation stuff going on. So it, hopefully we should pull off the same thing, and, and we'll try and get a guest uh, to make a threesome up there uh, for us as well, but I don't know who yet. So Good luck. Yeah, it should be fun. Yeah, that does sound like fun. Yeah, and the, the lab, uh, El Apogee room is, is freaking huge, if I remember correctly, from last time. That, I think, is the, the big room where they had the, um, isn't that the room at the top of the Biltmore with the giant windows, uh, Brett, from last time? If I recall correctly, yes, but it's been almost two years, so yeah. I'm a little. Yeah, exactly. Shaking uh, on the details. If it is that room, then we need a lot of people to come to make it not look so empty. Yes, definitely. As we're, everyone should go. It's over lunch. It's yeah. go to the food carts on the street. Yeah, and then just straight upstairs. Go back up, <laughs> please. So anyway, hope to see you there. Well, you know, I think it's exciting news that Golden Goblin Press has uh, released the PDF of De Horori Cosmico to their Kickstarter backers, of which I am one. Uh, it's six beautiful scenarios inspired by Lovecraft stories, but reset in a Roman era uh, setting. Uh, great work all around, everybody there. I know Oscar was chiding himself for being like a month late getting it out the door, but oh god, I think compared to other Kickstarters and considering the quality of the work, it's uh, it was worth a little bit of a wait. Pretty awesome. Very cool. That is awesome. 
Yeah, I can't wait to see some of those. And that should be out to regular. I think they sent it to the printers. He's expecting copies soon, and when the copies are in, they'll release the PDF for general sale, um, and then the book will go out. So definitely before Necronomicon. Sweet. That's cool. Maybe we can get to play some of those at Necronomicon. That'd be really nice. Bring your toga. Bring my toga. <laughs> and your gladius. Yes, You'll I'll be both. <laughs> I have my Lorica sitting in the closet waiting. <laughs> um, also, uh, just a bit of odd news, I guess. Uh, the, the FTC has announced it's investigating the doom that came to Atlantic City. Basically, they finally stepped in with the FTC to look at this Kickstarter for the doom that came to Atlantic City to see what in the heck actually happened and if, you know, the, the original, um, campaign, campaign, the, uh, creator. About the, oh yeah. The, well, one of the creators, yeah, guess, one of the creators, I guess, actually disappeared with $122,000 of the backers money, uh, which, Yikes. um, has been a, a point of contention with this, um, Kickstarter since I, you know, this, I think actually launched about the same, didn't it launch, John, about the same time we started this show? And it's, I think it is still in the, the news, which is kind of wild. Well, I mean, when you do, when you say like, I went, I had to move to Portland, I right. think, and your money's gone. Yeah. People tend to get mad. Get pissed off. Yeah. I moved to Portland. There was a, a bunch of like license fees that he bought that wasn't related to this and other, all sorts of I things. Furnishing was purchased. Yeah. It's all sorts of really kind of questionable things that went on with the money that came yeah. from there. So because of that, um, the FTC is investigating crowdfunding in general and these sorts of campaigns where, you know, people are uh, just walk off with the money basically because evidently Kickstarter has no control or, or they do officially, but unofficially they don't back it up at all on whether or not, you know, someone just disappears with the money. Well, they're, they're, I mean, they can just simply say it was, you know, a fundraising option. It was never, it's not a pre-order system. Right. Which is so. their theory, but <laughs> screwed over pretty easy. Yeah. It's, it's not hard to, uh, you know, just completely shaft you, but oh well. Well, yes. How, how many of us have outstanding Kickstarters we're waiting for or working on currently? No comment. Too many. <laughs> <laughs> Too many. Uh, up next is, uh, the any nominations are in. Yay. We have a link in the show yeah. notes. You can see the full list. Uh, just a quick rundown of the uh, the Mythos base stuff, which is abundant, by the way. Yes. We have uh, Best Adventure, Horror on the Orient Express. Best Aid Accessory, uh, the uh, black, green Call of Cthulhu 7th Edition RPG dice set. Uh, best Cover Art for Arcton Cthulhu Terrors of the Secret War from Modifius Entertainment. Uh, best Interior Art from Trail of Cthulhu Dreamhounds of Paris, which is a really awesome looking book, by the way. Yes. Best Cartography, which was Horror in the Orient, which I have to agree. Um, best Electronic Book, Ken Writes About Stuff Volume 2. Best Monster Adversary was Octung Cthulhu Terrors of the Secret War. Best Podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Translating the Strange, NPC Cast, Grim Dark Podcast, and this little known show called the Miskatonic University Podcast. Hmm. Go boat. 
Um, <laughs> yes, go Vods. Uh, the best production values was Horror on the Orient Express. I wholeheartedly agree there. The best settings is Trail of Cthulhu, Dreams House of Paris. Best writing, again, Ken writes about stuff, volume two. And then the product of the year nomination of the Mythos variety, at least, is Horror on the Orient Express again. Um, that's a pretty stacked lineup, man, of Lovecraftian stuff in the, uh, Cthulhu remains hip. in the, in the, in yep. his, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Yep. Pellegrine Press and Chiasium are well represented. Yeah. So that's so awesome. So is Modifius, too. They had three nominations, two yep. nominations yeah. in there. I mean, that's, that's pretty good. Yep. Uh, considering I would assume the, yeah, I know there's a lot of stuff that'll probably get nominated next year too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I imagine so, especially once seventh actually hits. Um, I imagine casting will be back in this list again. Yeah, having looked at the PDF of the London box set from oh. uh, Cubicle Seven, that's a beautiful thing. That is, and I kick myself on a daily basis because I could not back that at the time. I really wish I had. Yeah. It is fantastic. One of my good mates in um, in the UK, um, City's Looker from the Forums, um, got some of his stuff in for that, and it is fantastic looking. So, that's the end. Go vote. Yes, go vote. Go vote, please. <laughs> it would be nice to uh, to come in second to Ken and Robin. We realize we're not going to. Oh, we're not going to win mean, this. They're, they're, they're tired. They're old. They're yeah, ready to. They're ready to pass it on. Right. They've already won this. <laughs> it's just you know. Twice, fifty-two episodes of <laughs> amusement. Why should you vote for that? Yeah, come on, we've got eighty-three now. Uh, <laughs> I know you guys. Are, well, I mean, they do fifty-two. They seem to do one a week, every week, no matter what. Yeah, no kidding. I don't. It's a, they're a machine, but you guys did a great job. So, you know, thank you very much. We we appreciate that. But yeah, we'd like to get silver. <laughs> Too bad, show. We, if we can't if we can't get gold, silver would be great. So uh, that is. The Campus Crier. For the uh, Cryptocurium Spotlight this month is the Parcel of Terror for August, which looks really cool. Um, it's. It, have you seen this yet, guys? Have you all seen the Parcel of Terror for oh, August? Yeah. Yeah, I'm checking it out right now. <laughs> it's really wow. cool. The Haunter in the Dark wall plaque, which is what I'm most excited about, is really awesome. And, yeah. and then the Mummy sticker, which I don't. I just don't understand how Jason can make these stickers look so freaking awesome, but they just look great. Um, and, and they're all, those are all hand drawn, right? Yeah, I mean, he those, draws those, all these. That's, he's not, he's not, you know, using clip art or something. No, yeah, yeah, no, he's, he's drawing, he's that. drawing these and then, you know, producing them out as stickers. Yeah, it's just fantastic. Jeez. Uh, obviously he's more talented than us. That's all I can say. <laughs> Well, well, at yeah. least in that fashion. Um, Brett's equally as talented in another area. Not us, John. <laughs> Not, Not us. us. <laughs> uh, no. Then it also has an anatomical... Talking to Mike. <laughs> That's right. And then it has an anatomical brain keychain, um, which is pretty cool looking little guy. Uh, and then the ghost face magnet, which is the face from um, the Scream. Scream! This is cool. It's a cute little little guy. And then the uh, Cthulhu Idol Linocut print, which is quite a cute little um, Linocut, actually. I have the same uh, McKittrick statue that that's based on. 
and it's um, it's quite nice. I like the the statue, and I like these little little bitty uh, prints that he puts in these as well. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a mystery item, of course, and um, we will not tell you what it is, but it's really cool. I, I can only guess. Well, I have but no isn't, idea what isn't the mystery? It's always the candy, right? I don't know. It's not. I I don't think it's always the candy, but I thought. Dan had said that previously, but maybe maybe he has. I don't know. I don't remember. Either way, but it's still cool. Yes. Oh, it says it says uh, the mystery items are taking the place of candy until the fall, when it will be safe to ship again without fear of melting. So it is not candy. Oh, that's awesome! It is not. It is candy. not candy. So yeah, you'll have a nice. a nice little mystery object in there that you can't eat. <laughs> yeah. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. <laughs> ah, I see. You, I see. You don't have a history item. I could read something from my uh, history blog if you'd like. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this comes. This comes from folklore sketches and reminiscences of New Hampshire life from 1910. This is the last witch trial I've ever found reference to. In 1910? No, the book is from oh. 1910. The case is 1820. Sometime before 1820. Well, you're doing your reality but, shift there. I was really happy well, there was to a, evaluate things. There was a witch trial in 1874, but that was between some Christian scientists, yeah. one of whom tried to use the un, still not canceled witch laws to sue everybody else for using their bad mojo on him. Oh, my gosh. That would be a different one, but this was, uh, let's see. When I was teaching school in the town of Lyman in 1821, I boarded with a Mr. and Mrs. Gibson. A few years previous, Mrs. Gibson had been accused of being a witch and tried spooky music. The story is as follows. Mrs. Gibson had several daughters, and a man by the name of Eastman had been keeping company with one of them. The course of true love did not run smoothly, and Eastman was rejected. One day, Mr. Eastman was driving past the Gibson house when one of the wheels of his cart ran off the axle into a ditch, and as fast as he could put it on, it ran off again. He concluded he was bewitched. On arriving home, he found a litter of young pigs dancing on their hind legs, not an unusual occurrence, but to his excited mind, a sure proof that a witch had held him in his, held him and his in her powers. He went to the pump house in the yard for water to heat to scald the pigs, when, lo, no water came forth to his repeated efforts. He had once jumped on the horse and rode at breakneck speed to the Gibson house. He found Mrs. Gibson laying down after a hard day's work, and he abused, and the abuse he heaped on her head was more than the neighbors could bear, and they drove him away. He had her arrested, and the trial was held in the meeting house, and people came from miles around to be present at what proved to be the last trial of its kind in New Hampshire. The jury found her guiltless and ordered him to pay $14 for the cost of the trial. The end. That's fantastic. <laughs> he heaped more here's abuse your four, upon here's her. Here's your $14. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, back in 1821, it's a pretty healthy chunk of change. But, yeah, I, I dug into it more and contacted the local historical society, and they basically know that account and one other that says mostly the same stuff, except you know, it doesn't mention the, him dating one of her daughters. But that's the uh, oldest latest actual people thinking someone else is a witch the the reason you scald the piglet that was behaving strangely was not out of animal cruelty but the notion that if a witch bewitched an animal if you hurt the animal that was bewitched the witch would be harmed in the same way so uh oh my 
you know, if your horse became lame, you know, you'd whip it, and then the witch would you know, have these. welts on her or something. Nice. Yeah. Yes, that's uh, so, brilliant logic we had in those days, isn't it? Well, yes. I consider. I mean, people still are executed for witchcraft, just not in the U.S. Mostly, I think. Oh, Africa. What was it? You know, parts of Africa and Asia, albinos especially are endangered. And, you know, I mean, not that people don't believe in absurd supernatural things here. Yeah, it's uh, it's tragic, but still. Um, yes. But scalding your pig will not stop the witch. That's, that's I'll just a say good that. thing to make note of, I suppose. I'll put that in my little book of uh, things to check next time I'm under attack of witch kind. <laughs> oh, man. So uh, today in the bestiary, we thought it would be cool to go over something that Chad has wanted to go over forever, but he could not make it today, so he does not get to talk about it, and therefore we all rejoice. <laughs> it's like we waited until Chad couldn't be here. That Yeah, now let's talk about the color out of space. That's right, the color out of space. Ooh. Probably my one of my favorite as well, colors, just because our colors. <laughs> um, um not colors, uh, monsters in the bestiary, just because it's so strangely different from the majority of other things that, that are in here. Um, so let's just give a, a rundown of what the color out of space actually is. So in, I'm going to be using the, um, the last edition of the Malleus Monstorum, uh, which is where I'm getting this quote from. Um, so just so you know where it's coming from. So a color, and that's color, C-O-L-O-U-R, of course, is a sentient organism which manifests itself as pure color. It's not gaseous. It is, ins- it is insubstantial. When it moves, it is visible as an amorphous, glistening patch of color, rolling and shining in shades of its pale colors that match nothing in the known spectrum. This patch pours over the ground or flies in a living fashion, and when it feeds, its victim's skin and face glow with the color. Uh, though incorporeal, it passes, its passing nonetheless feels like the touch of a slimy, unhealthy vapor. Geiger counters register its presence as a distinctive burst of radiation, and with today's light intensification gear, it shows as a bright patch of luminosity. Uh, so that's your, your basic description of the colors out of space. Um, they famously appeared in the story from Lovecraft, the same name, um, and oddly enough, um, happened to, uh, be the subject of the movie that is finally getting better distribution, um, the Farber or the color of space, the German version, which we mentioned in the, uh, campus crier earlier. Um, guys, have y'all used this in game at all? <laughs> Dumb question, I know, but has anyone well, used this in game? <laughs> I, I wrote a, a monograph that may have a color in it or two. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, but, I mean, do you want to have the spoiler train go off there? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, here's a spoiler train right here. Spoiler, 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 spoiler. Brett, tell us about the monograph. Well, uh, in Machine Tractor Station Karkov 37. This is a great game, by the way. Which is, you know, the, I've been told the worst monograph title ever, but um, <laughs> it's, 
you play the role of um, Russian Soviets, um, soldiers, and other uh, government agents who are sent to a collective farm, which was one of the genius ideas they had to improve agriculture by moving everyone from their own homes to giant industrial farms um, and telling them, you share all the land now. Congratulations. Yes, and by the way, the food you're, uh, you're generating will not actually be eaten by you. So, Oh, and you should also not grow the crops you should, should traditionally grow. You should grow these other weird strains that our scientists think will grow faster in this horrible soil. None of which proved true. And the tractor station was everybody had to share some tractors that we may or may not actually deliver on time. And if you starve to death, it's your yes, fault. Yes, it's your fault. Um, but the uh, let's just say there was one tractor station that had a bumper crop inexplicably <laughs> um, and then suddenly stopped sending in reports. So uh, it, let's just say it turns out to be several colors in the area um, as one of the side effects of the color's presence is unnatural plant growth briefly. Uh, so they had a lot of r- crops, but not a lot of it was edible as the crops that tends to spawn or, uh, or induce to be generated are toxic and foul tasting and deformed. So fortunately that passed for okay in Stalin's Russia. At least, you know, you turned in a bunch of grain. No one could eat it, but you turned it in. Mm-hmm. At least you had your volume there. That was all that mattered really. That's, and you know, I, I, you know, it was, for me, it was kind of a metaphor of Stalin of the sort of, industrial policies of Stalin, which I know is kind of heady stuff for a horror game, but no matter we you know, it doesn't have to, it can be deformed and horrible, but we'll just make extra and you're great. <laughs> have you, uh, this is slightly off topic, but have you read uh, child 44? No, I have not, uh, uh, but I have read, I, I did some, I took a, yeah, I took a graduate course school course on Stalinist technology. And I read a number of books all about what terrible things they did to, scientists and researchers in the thirties and you know, like everybody at this symposium was executed later. Nice. Oh, okay. Jesus. Pretty grim. Oh no, it's, it's there's a book I actually read called the uh, Mag- oh, the history of Magnitogorsk, the city that they said, Hey, there's iron here. Let's build a city. <laughs> and yeah, it was um, like, you know, they, they would just send people by train. They would dump them off the train and there'd be, you know, they'd say, build your own house right. and then start making iron. <laughs> So it was, it was, it was insane. Mechanized madness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, child 44 wow. is set in the very end of the Stalinist period. Uh, it's a novel by Tom Rob Smith. It's actually, it's actually a very good novel. I've heard good things about yeah, it. It's very good. I've actually, I liked it so much. I picked up the second one. It's not usually a genre I read that child 45. <laughs> yeah. Child 45. <laughs> uh, no, the second one is called, uh, the secret speech. Uh, I think it was turned into a not as well received movie. Yeah, a year it, was. Or two it, it, it was. It was released earlier this year, I think in April. Um, but it's it did not do very well, from what I understand. I have not seen it. But the the book is fantastic. Um, and if you have any any inklings about uh, Stalinist Russia, or if you enjoy that whole period of history, you should read the book because it's quite it's quite good. He does a very good job in relaying the overall bleak uh, situation encountered by many of the citizens. <laughs> yes, it's it's alien, but also f- under familiar enough that you can wrap your mind around it in a way that makes it especially horrific. Yeah, no doubt. Anyway, back to the color out of space. Yes. Um, so, uh, as Brett mentions, uh, if the color gets around the ground where local vegetation happens to be present, um, it obviously it's going to... Um, 
permeate through the local uh, ecosystem there and cause these rather large and tremendous growth spurts with um, any particular part of um, stuff there, you know. Uh, or plant life uh, in the area. So you end up with these large uh, fruit and vegetables and just plant life in general. Deformed. Yeah, they'll be deformed somewhat, um, especially insects and animals that are in the area will be then all deformed. Yes. Um, and if they're infected, um, they're going to glow with the color at night. You know, so you'll, you'll actually see them glowing at night with that uh, particular hue of unknown color. Um, and then the, there's the little larvals, uh, larvas, or I guess I should say. So, well, you should probably mention the, the color to set. They're they're an alien species that comes to Earth on a meteorite, usually. Um, although at least in one scenario, they hitch a ride. Um, right. And uh, yeah, they're so yeah, they're, they're either they're either an alien that's come recently, or it's been dormant or or trapped in the ground from a previous. We're unfortunately part of its life cycle, apparently. Yeah. Um, and so you, it might have been there the entire time and wasn't active until maybe some miners came around or, or some farmers had, had struck a new well or something, uh, which then happened to um, cause the color to, to activate or, or proceed to the next stage of its life cycle. Um, and then what it does, basically, it finds itself a nice little hidey hole. And then makes these trips from its little <laughs> lair and feeds. Usually water. Yeah, it does seem to be tied to water quite a bit, but it doesn't have to be. And then it, it, it goes out at, at typically at night and feeds on energy um, and life force and, and sucks it from <laughs> the land, the animals, the people, the everything. everything. And it, and it, it even turns like inanimate objects to dust eventually. Yeah, it just completely wipes everything out. So eventually, what you're left with is a is a a stark, uh, blighted landscape um, with nothing around uh, because it has sucked all the life out of everything. In the in the Malice Monstorum, I believe that they mentioned that. Um, once it's matured, the color can drain the life force from a, from about a five acre um, area of of land that's rich in life, or maybe like ten to twenty acres of like grassland or something of that nature. Yeah, I think that's roughly a rough estimate based on the original story. Yeah. So do what you want in your game. Yeah, essentially, <laughs> as long as you give it a blighted area for it to be yeah. around, you're good. But it leaves an indelible, accursed mark upon the land. This is not something you recover from. No. It never gets better. No, and it can do it under underwater mm-hmm. as well. So you can even put it, yeah. you know, in the ocean, for instance, and then you end up with this blighted, um, maybe acres of blighted ocean, which you know there's just nothing alive at all yep. in you know the entire extreme of the uh, the ocean there, which would be interesting as well. Yeah, I don't think the game was an ocean the, version of the color. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard one. But yeah. That would be a night. That'd be a neat look. Well, the, yeah, I was just thinking an ocean version or an ocean setting would be amazing for this, uh, and the the type of creatures that escape from that area are are sea monsters. You know, they're 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 you know mutated you know underwater creatures that are 
that are fighting to survive now. You know, I think it might be even, maybe they're more interesting to to make it a, a, a Colorado Space Deep One mashup. So you end up with, with <laughs> the Deep Ones fighting. Yeah, them. Deep Ones fighting them, and then you have Deep Ones that are overcome with the deformities and have grown to abhorrent sizes. You know, the size of Dagon maybe. And uh, so you have you know strange Deep Ones and the color versus normal yeah, deep ones in humans. That would be a strange mashup. Oh, they all, we, we forgot to mention, they also inspire sort of a lethargy and inertia in the people in the area. Oh, that's right. In. I forgot about that. So they, they, yeah, they well, don't want to leave. They can't leave. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of that I think is because they suck the life force out of any living thing in the area. So you just don't have, it's almost like you're in a depressed state. So you just don't have the energy to sit up and, leave i think even even that that i think there's even more than that the you know the farmer describes like he wants to go but just can't because he can feel it it's feel it there it's it's very keeping him, like holding him in place like it's a piece pinned down right um now so far as game terms um typically when you use the the color uh in a game you want to give like an int roll or or something um Something to give the players a warning because yeah. once it hits, it's on like Donkey Kong. You know what I mean? It's, uh, it's gonna do some serious problems. Um, so I think the genius of an alien sort of creature makes it challenging to use in scenarios because it's so, you know, you can't fight it. It's not material. You can't, I mean, there's some scenarios sort of imply spells have some use against it, but it's not bound. You can't bind it. It didn't get summoned. It's just yeah, because it's completely imp- unsubstantial, so you can't actually defend against it or attack against it or anything. You basically got a couple of rolls, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, so it's hard. I mean, people have offered some options. You know, magnetism has been proposed as one method to deal with them. Um, but it's it's a challenging to use in a scenario. Well, it's been a people, but it's also just a, such an alien and horrific creature that I, I I understand the draw to use it in the scenario. Yeah, it's it's a um, it's one of those. It's an odd kind of a um, a monster because it's not one that you put out intending to be a um, a TPK. Although it can very easily be a TPK, you kind of want to bring it in as being a um, like a catalyst for pushing along. You know what I mean? You want to use it in the story more as a, a reason for why to get the people together to do something about it as opposed to yeah. just a simple, okay, we're going to go fight some deep ones now or something like that. And that can frustrate players sometimes because they figure out that there's nothing they can do to hurt it. Right. And then they, you know, like, why are right. we here? Well, you're here because it's scary. <laughs> yeah, because this is completely alien yeah. to anything that you're used to. And it really is, even in the monster sense of the, you know, in the game terms of it, because there's nothing you can really do against it. Um, yeah. Now, whenever, whenever it feeds... Um, so what you do, uh, you match your pow or the, the color's pow against the victim's current magic points. And for every 10 full points, uh, that the color exceeds its victim, it permanently drains one point each of strength, con, pow, dex, and app from the victim. Ouch. Um, and this also costs him, um, him or her, um, a 1d6 hit points as well. And so each pow, um, that ends up being drained increases the colors pow as well. So if there's a lot of people around, you know, you can increase the colors pow, you know, three or four times 
three or four points per feeding, which the next time around is going to make, you know, it even more vicious, <laughs> you know, so it, it kind of escalates rather quickly. Yeah, once you reach, once, uh, once it reaches a certain power, uh, that, that's when you win when it blasts off into space after eating everyone. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, that's basically how you get around it. <laughs> you let it finish its, you get enough life in the area so that it can't kill everything, yet still, um, uh, meets its limit and then leaves, essentially. Well, and hopefully it fully leaves. It doesn't like, hey, here's a little bit of an offspring. Or, I'm going to leave this yes. behind. Or hopefully it does, and yeah. then it's dormant for your next game where you go to that area again, or however you want to work it, you know? Yeah. Yes, it's certainly implied in the, the original story that the color has never quite departed. Yeah, it is. It's 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 very apparent that they it left the little larva behind or something. For they later. probably shouldn't build a reservoir <laughs> for it to live in. <laughs> yeah, be a, but yeah. you know what? We're gonna, just, let's just don't drink the water. This whole let's just yeah. You know, why not? Yeah. It's already, the trees are gone. There's no stumps there now. So <laughs> it's, it's like ready made. Yeah. Bad idea. Well, we, 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 the Lovecraft did not write a sequel, so we don't know what happened to the poor people of Arkham drinking color out of space water. That's true. Mm. Um, so also we mentioned earlier, if you, if you happen to, uh, live in the area that it, it does things to the, uh, the people in the area, it, basically what it's doing, if you have a low pow and it, it's, or colors of a low pow feeding on, uh, humans, it, it's basically a mental attack. So it can weaken through, you know, weaken the mind. So every person in that vicinity of the color matches his or her int against the pow and then they just lose a D6 of magic points and a D6 of sanity. Uh, and then the magic points that are, are gone, are, they don't come back until you actually end up leaving the area. Unfortunately, this also binds the victim to his or her home uh, or land, um, and, and it becomes more and more difficult for them to actually leave. Um in such that, you know, for them to actually get out, they're going to have to uh, roll against their uh, current magic points times five uh, or less, you know, on a, on a D100. If they make that, then they can leave. If they can't, then they stay in the area. So it's very difficult to actually get out of there once he starts feeding on you. Yeah, which just makes this, you know, that's that was that's what makes the color so horrible is you can't fight it. And it's hard to escape. Yeah, it's it's so, very. It just has to keep eating and eating and eating until it finally gets you know bloated and 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 you know blasts away. Hopefully, and using this creature in a uh, in a in an adventure or in a campaign, I think you know as, as noted, you know, the players could get frustrated. Why why are we facing off against this? And it's really because this is a horror game and. Uh, you know, if a, if a, if a group of investigators are, are confronting, uh, a color, this is a real lesson in that, uh, futility and the, in the horror and, and, you know, how small man is compared to the cosmos, you know? Yeah, it's quite, uh, it can be really, like Brett said, it can be very frustrating if you're a player and you're up against this and, and you go in thinking that you're going to be fighting something that's definable. Or even with Lovecraft monsters, where fighting's not always the option and running is, 
that option has been almost completely removed in this case because it's very difficult to get out of the area once you've been fed upon by the uh by the color out of space. So I mean even that option is not really viable to the players. So it can be very frustrating if you don't know what to do or or you know how to deal with that. Hopefully the the keeper has instituted a method with which there is some sort of uh, success. Um, and most of the most of the, the scenarios include one offer some some option for the players. I mean, although you know, in some cases like mine, it's run away. But um, there's some other you know, elements there that make it. You know, I think there's a, a Trail of Cthulhu scenario that uses one pretty successfully because it just presents you this really depressing and you know downer ending sort of film. Oh, yeah. And then in the the Cthulhu, or, uh, the spoiler alert, and the killer out of space, which honestly the title's a giveaway. They, uh, there's a, you know, farm near, or there's a, I think a junkyard nearby that has a very large magnet you can use to trap it. So. Now, uh, in addition to being able to feed upon people, it, as if that wasn't enough and, and not being able to leave the area easily is, is, is not enough reason to think this is a horrid monster. It then has this option that it can just, you know, I don't know, disintegrate a giant hole in your belly just because it wants to. Yeah. Why not? You know, um, typically they use this power to like in the story to actually excavate an area underground or, or something of that nature. Um, but essentially it can just remove a, uh, uh, a part of you basically by concentrating the monster can then solidify a part of itself. And then that part becomes translucent and then it can use its strength to, you know, to grapple humans, to grapple weapons, to manipulate other objects, but then also to melt, um, um, a cubic foot of, for instance, titanium, or uh, oh, yeah, no several cubic yards of, of pine or, or some other softwood like that. And it, it just presents itself as, as just the lack of anything there. So it literally disintegrates whatever it wants to uh, go up against you. Um, you know, so there's always that. Yeah, it's – you don't fight the color. <laughs> no, no. You, this is not a monster you fight. In, this is like a demigod kind of monster. This is like the Cthulhu that yes. you run the hell away from, which is yeah. But I think I think it's used well. And it's it's they can be a lot of fun. Oh yeah, no, they great. They play great in game because um, because it is a change up. And, you know, and a lot of a lot of people play and they they go against the same old things and then you know throw yeah. them with a, a color at them and they they are completely dumbfounded because there is no escape except escape and that's not easy. Yeah. You- you can shoot a shog at that it may be, it won't die, but it'll be annoyed. Right. <laughs> yeah. This, I mean, there's no, there is no retaliation against it. It's, it's a slow and eventual certain death unless you can do something or have some mechanism to, to combat it or leave the area. For some reason, it makes me think of that Futurama bit where Zap Brannigan talks about how he defeated the kill bots by knowing they had a preset kill limit and he had to throw wave after wave of his own men at it till it reset. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so for stats, um, for the color out of space against this is coming off of six editions, uh, Malleus Monstrum, cause that's what I have in front of me. So the strength was 1d6 per 10 pow or fraction thereof. So, you know, it's it's not it it gets more and more as 
as it feeds, obviously. The con is obviously not applicable. Uh, size is equal to its pal, which is averages, it says 10 to 11, which can obviously go far up from there. Um, int is 46. Uh, 2d6 of pow, which obviously is going to go up as it feeds. Um, and then a dex um, of 2d6 plus 12. And then it can move at a 12 pouring rate, which I thought was an interesting adjective to use. So it, it moves at 12 pouring, which is like it flowing across the ground towards wherever, or at a 20 flight rate. Um, so there's no really escaping this dang thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the weapons, or if you want to call them that, its feed attack is at 85%. Uh, and then as we described it earlier, it's going to do a 1d6 plus your characteristic loss. Um, and then a mineral attack damage is at 100%, and it's 1d6 magic points plus a d6 of sand. Um, and then it's a disin- the disintegrate attack is at 100% also, um, and that's going to basically put a hole in you. So, you know, instant death. Um, nothing major. Um, and then it can grapple you if it really wanted to at 85% for no damage. Um, of course, it's invulnerable to physical attack. Uh, it's except by strong magnetic fields, which can imprison it. Um, and it's vulnerable to some magic, but not obviously not all magic. And then the base sanity loss is a 0 slash 1d4 to see a color, and then 1 slash 1d8 um, to see the victim of a color. And that is the color out of space. So any other further thoughts on the color, how you can maybe change the color up to use that? or One actual comment I have, the reality comes from something called impossible or forbidden colors. I compete with Link, I, I hope, depending on my... I you did, you should, yeah. Out. The Wikipedia yeah. link did share. It's, this um, is cool. It's, We've got a link in the show notes to um, the impossible color in, at Wikipedia, which is kind of like a reddish green kind of color, I think. Um, and it it's um, it, it goes the article goes through trying to describe a color which you cannot actually describe because we can't see it, um, but can be, but does exist. Obviously, it's just one of those really weird. It's an interesting article. Um, if Brett's internet would come back alive, we might be able to learn more. There we go. Go ahead. Yeah, just it's a, it's nice to know that science can try to explain might possibly what the color is, but right. it's but you know the article gives is like a zero slash one sanity loss to read. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> especially the section on imaginary colors and chimerical colors, I thought those. The Stygian colors, you know, you've all kind of crazy Stygian colors. Stygian colors, right? Simultaneously dark and impossibly saturated. <laughs> it's like what? Uh, okay, that's uh, that's different. So, if I if I if I may read a brief passage from the color out of space, if you can actually hear me. Sure. At that, at this, there was a general cry, muffled with awe, but husky and almost identical from every throat. For the terror had not faded with the silhouette, and in a fearsome instant of deeper darkness, the watcher saw wiggling, wriggling at the treetop height a thousand tiny points of faint and unhallowed radiance, tipping each bough like the fire of St. Elmo or the flames that came down from the apostles' heads at Pentecost. It was a monstrous constellation of unnatural light, like a gulp 
glutted swarm of corpse-fed fireflies dancing hellish sarabands over an accursed marsh, and its color was the same nameless intrusion which Amy had come to recognize and dread. Very cool. Mm. <laughs> That's just a lot of Lovecraftian words. Yeah, it so is. <laughs> it was string those together. Oh, it's Lovecraft. That's what he does best. <laughs> comes up with adjectives that shouldn't go with one another and makes them go with one another. It was no longer shining out. It was pouring out. Right. It pours out. That's why I love how they describe that. It pours along shapeless stream of unplaceable color left the well. It seemed to flow directly into the sky. You know, it's, it's, it's just crazy. Um, so that is the color out of space. Um, and now we do this. Settle down now, class. It's time for your next lesson. So uh, we have the brilliant uh, opportunity to be talking with Brett Kramer today. Hello, Brett. Hello. In case you hadn't noticed, Brett Kramer's on the show. And uh, we wanted to just uh, catch up with him because he hasn't been on the show in a while. In fact, we haven't had many guests on the show in quite a while. So... Brett, what's going on, man? Uh, you've got this little Kickstarter thing that you've been doing, and I think yeah, it, it's a little late. Did it, uh, did it fund, Brett? I don't recall. It, well, it funded back in December, um, and I've been trying to get the issue out ever since, and various delays um, have set in. I, I've been told if you want to have bad things happen in life, have a Kickstarter, and that has been nice. true, unfortunately. Um, so, you know, I've... Uh, yeah, the, the one month where I had two of my cats die was a bad time. <laughs> Jeez. Um, but I've been, you know, still luckily moving. Most of the issue was done, so we had the, the scenario was the main element that needed to be worked on, and that is in its final revisions as we speak, um, a PDF of the whole issue without the scenarios going out to backers today, and then hopefully in the next day or so we can get the rest of it out to our backers and then go through the process of um, putting it up on rpg.net um, or a drive through RPG and then uh, make a print-on-demand version available once I get a proof back in the mail and approve it. So we're hoping it'll be out very soon. I I, I would like people to listen to this podcast and go click on the link and discover it's already out there and not me apologizing for some <laughs> new mysterious delay, but I'll say that it's ready, and hopefully this won't come out by before Monday. No, it probably won't. And um, the cool thing here is that you you were at nice enough to give me a little preview of this PDF. And yes, I, I gave you the backer PDF to take a peek at which there. It is pretty cool, fantastic. I have to admit, it, it really invokes that old school Chaosium book uh, feel to it, with the same style. The, the it's just great. They. You know, Chris Huth did a great uh, job laying this out. So, uh, yeah, he looked at the, the sort of classic late, early nineties, late eighties sort of layout style for, uh, the love, old Lovecraft country books. We, yeah. we decided to emulate that since this is, I would like to view it as a continuation of that. Right. Especially with the box, it is, the, it, the box, uh, the sidebars and, and the, the contents in the box yeah, with, yep, with the drop the, shadow and everything. Spot on. Yeah. One and a half, it's a one and a half point. Dropbox, I believe, is like was Chaosium standard, mm-hmm. so we used it I, or Shadowbox. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it it is fantastic. It really brings it back, you know, to the to the early '90s and 
um, the early game books that we had back then. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, and then hopefully yeah, our illustrations exactly. <laughs> yes, yeah. There, there's the improvement, but it, it, this does look exactly like the uh, first edition, second edition box sets of uh, Call of Cthulhu that I've got that I love to kind of flip through and you know peruse and go back to back to the original stuff. And yeah, this is awesome. It really is. It's quite Thank it's you. quite good. Um, and then I can't. I'll have to read it later today. But uh, it, sure. it looks fantastic. And that, that scenario in there is huge, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty big. Um, it's, I think the unrevised down version was like 26, 27,000 words. Wow. So, yeah, it, well, uh, we, we tried to cover all of which, uh, the topic of the issue is witchcraft and especially in Lovecraft country. We try to cover all of our bases. Um, and there's just a lot you can do. It's, it's very much a sandbox scenario as well. So it's got you've got to cover a lot of ground, um, a lot of NPCs. So it's it's uh, we're, we're trying. To, one of the reasons we're revising it right now is we're trying to make it approachable to the keeper and not just right. a Titanic info dump. Here are seven NPCs you should learn. Bye bye. Right. <laughs> um, just slightly off topic. Who is the artist that did like uh, the? the you're, you've got some art in here for monsters, uh, particularly like the disloyal one, the plague bearer. Um, well, Chris Huth did the illustrations of our, our and our rat thing article. Really? Uh, where, yes, he wrote the rat thing article, yeah. and he also illustrated oh, it. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, uh-huh. he's, he, those are only some of them. He's not finished all of them, um, or at least hasn't put them up in the PDF yet, which we're waiting for as well. Uh, but, yeah, he did those. I think um, – oh, I need to look at the credit page. I know in the – which is hollow article. I think that was, um, Oh, who was that now? I'm going to have to, I'll, I'll double check. Yeah, no worries. But I mean, yeah, I'm, I was, those look really good. I'll really like the, the rat yeah. thing images. Those are fantastic. Yes. Those are yes. the names too. the, the dweller and the wainscoting. Right. I love it. It's great. Isn't it? Um, yeah, he gave a bunch of options for different sort of rat things. And then, um, an explanation of rat things as a, Instead of yeah, some options for how they are created, which are truly ghastly. Uh, and then the the scenario seed for the dried cat. The image there is quite spectacular. Yeah, that is a mm-hmm. different artist. I'm, yeah, Ian McLean. Oh, it's yeah. envisioned from the forms. Yeah. Uh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, he is an absolute. He did fantastic. one. He did a couple others for our article on gods of the witches. He did a a version of the black man. Um, oh wow! And the horned one. So. Yeah, he did, they did some, he did some great work there as well. I think Ian, Galen, I'm trying to remember if Galen Peugeot is in this issue as well, and I'm looking through, but yeah, so, yeah, Ian did some eerie work for us. Yeah, Ian's really good. He, he did our, um, our yearbook, um, images for us as well. And, um, just a consummate professional. I, I had no idea that, that Chris Huth was that talented as well. <laughs> Which, oh, oh, he's, uh, you can look at his I'll show, Let me dig up his uh, website here. I'll send it to you. Yeah, give us a link and I'll talk, drop in the show notes. Well, I'm yeah, still I mean, sorting through uh, the, uh, the Witch's Hollow. Oh my God. Which actually had no witches at it after reading the wonderfully bad Durleth story. <laughs> <laughs> what are the odds? Not the, not the poo poo or August Durleth. <laughs> well, it is I, a Durleth story, so it's never a given. <laughs> you know, I read it and I'm like, Witch's Hollow, that must be perfect. And, 
I mean, he had a couple other stories set around Arkham that had witches involved, but one of them, yeah, they're, they're both head scratchingly odd. I'm trying to think of a nicer way to say it. Uh, odd choices were made. I don't think there is a nicer I think way one, to say it. Well, in one, you know, you've got, in Witches Hollow, you've got a guy who was an unusual student at his, his, the elementary school, Witches Hollow outside of Arkham, and, you know, the first thing he does after trying to talk to the boy and discovering his family or weird recluses is goes, someone says, go to Miskatonic University, look at the Necronomicon, okay. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Shows up there and, you know, runs into a professor in the stacks who's like, oh, I hate the Cthulhu mythos, let me help you fight it. <laughs> And in, uh, what's the, the shadow in the attic? You've got a guy who inherits a house, but he has to stay in it from his, you know, a mysterious uncle who killed people with spells, so he does, and his much spunkier girlfriend. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, it Durant was trying to pass that one off as a Lovecraft collaboration and, and read, I mean, it's not. It was based on a passage or two from Lovecraft, or, you know, one of his, um, commonplace book ideas right. there's a section where you know a mysterious figure climbs into his bed and he you know thought it was his fiance but knew her that it was not her supple breasts so you know he realized it was the, the witch like i don't think i've never seen the phrase supple bosom in a, in a lovecraft story so i'm going to say that's not him <laughs> what do you mean surely surely yeah. uh surely uh lovecraft wrote a little bit of erotica I, there at some point um, I will give him credit though that the, the, his fiance is one of the more Cthulhu investigator characters I've ever seen where she discovers the house has an evil history, tries to convince her idiot fiance to leave and then sets it on fire when he won't. Perfect. Yeah, that's a, it's a perfect player move there basically. <laughs> yeah. Like a burn it down. That's, that was my group's answer to virtually every infestation of anything. <laughs> She kills it with fire. Yeah. What is that? We have rat things in the walls? Burn it down. Oh, wait, we have a roach infestation? Burn it down. Pretty much. <laughs> so that was the kind of group I play with. But, um, yeah, I was looking at uh, whose website. It's fantastic. I didn't realize uh, all the stuff. He did the covers for Investigator Weapons 1 and 2 for yeah. Um, yeah, Guy in Reach for Pelgrane, a bunch of other stuff. A lot of Pelgrane work. Yeah. 60 Stone. Uh, he's, just, he's been... Yeah, sixty cents. He's been laying out there, uh, Dracula dossier. He did the he um, did the Esoteros. The illustration. Oh yeah, he yeah. did. That's fantastic. So yeah. yeah, it's good. I'm very happy to have him helping out with this project and giving a lot of not just write and writing for it too, which I think has been a little bit of a change for him. Well, it gives him. He's been writing for his own gaming group for a while, but I, I'm glad I uh, convinced him. Not I did not trick him uh, <laughs> into writing some, some fun. <laughs> So if we have a lot of, you know, great, uh, we have a lot of great submissions for it. Christopher Smith Adair, um, wrote a really intriguing article, um, on the link between witches and ghouls, drawing on, uh, some of the theories put forth in, um, Margaret Murray's The Witch Cult in Western Europe. Oh, that's awesome. I'll have to read that one. Um, another, another friend yeah, of the show there with Chris, uh, and, uh, at Necronomicon, by the way. I think he'll be there. So. Um, I know he's going to be, at, I think he's going to Gen Con, if I recall. And, um, I'm trying to, no, my PDF is not opening, so I can't, I'm trying to do this off the top of my head. No, it's so. no worries. Oh, let's see, who else do we have? That's, um, Tyler Hudak, um, oh, yeah. Travelix, Travelix is, uh, he wrote a bit about using witches in games in more interesting ways, um, and how to sort of create better witch NPCs. And that's great. Um, you know, sort of just, you know, Challenging sort of, I mean, suggest offering ways you can use witches as something more than just an evil spellcaster who cackles. 
which I think is important. I, I like the um, the article on building a better witch as well. Yes, that was ty- that was that Trevlix. was Trevlix, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, and uh, a little bit of my spell notes in his article. <laughs> it's quite good, though. It, it's, it gives you a, a, a full realm of uh, possibilities there on what you can do with uh, witches. Yeah, I mean, the, you, you know, also, the witches. Oh, I'm sorry. No, okay. you go on. Please. No, I, uh, I was going to. I was looking at the uh, at the cover you in uh, going over some of the people who helped contribute to the uh, to this issue. Uh, I see you also gave thanks to Mike Medwick and the homunculus. Oh, yes. I think that might, I think that might be a slightly out of date from the last time. I, I was thinking what. the homunculus was, was thanked previously, wasn't it? And in, in, yeah, she was And every time she lets daddy work. I, <laughs> I thank the homunculus. I think in AG two <laughs> is when you, when you thanked her last time, I believe. Yeah. So when, when she's, does not try to pull the laptop out of my lap so I can play with her. <laughs> well, I do appreciate it. And then you do have, of course, the dedication to Aurora and Charcoal, which I can only yeah, those assume are the, is the two cats that had passed. Yeah, my, I lost some of my familiars, unfortunately. Um, it was a long week, I'll just say that. But I hate to, I did, yeah, I just, it was not a great time, so. Oh, I can imagine. Well, yeah, it looks fantastic, man. It's, it, it, yeah, it's, but- so much more than what I expected. I have to admit, I I don't know what I really expected. I, I expected more of the same, but not quite so professionally laid out. You know what I mean? Well, that's why I went with a professional instead of doing it myself. Yeah, it, it's amazing <laughs> how that helps, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Um, and it's really cool to see the Sentinel Hill uh, logo there on the on. Well, that was also that was my design, and Chris drew it. So it's I'd say ninety percent him. Like have us some. A hill with some things on top and some some Yog Sothoth coming down. I mean, yeah. you know, Sentinel Hill Press's our imprint um, where we have the license, and um, you know, it's also sort of a joke off the uh, the sacrifice stone on Sentinel Hill Press that most of the, the Sentinel Hill the set the, the uh, sacrifice stone that Lovecraft was probably inspired by was likely a colonial uh, cider press. So <laughs> I didn't know that. That's hilarious. Yeah, that, I mean. Well, you've got a whole, if we ever, whenever we get to Dunwich, there's a whole subculture of New England pseudo archaeology where, you know, every colonial ruin or, you know, outhouse is assumed to have been the creation of the Phoenicians, <laughs> um, or the Vikings or anybody but Indians because we know that they couldn't build anything ever, of course. <laughs> um, and that was the most sarcasm. Because you know Tenochtitlan wasn't the world's largest city when the Spaniards arrived or anything. Said, "Hey, let's burn this down. We'll kill you with flames." Um, yeah, <laughs> we have some swords and disease for you. Yes. Uh, but yeah, so you know, the, the, yeah, there's a whole. But yeah, the the ruins that may have inspired or thought what were thought to be ruins that may have inspired Lovecraft a bit were, uh, you know, probably just you know colonial leftovers in a cider press that was you know. In a weirdly thought to be like a you know sac- human sacrifice stone. Oh, that's hilarious. So that's that's my little mm-hmm. pun. Um, but yeah, we've got. <laughs> I try to cover everything that might. Well, the problem was I tried to cover everything I thought might be interesting in an issue, which is why the issue ran like eighty thousand words, which is probably at least forty percent longer than it should. Well, I mean, um, to get it out on time. But well, yeah, if you're fighting it, the clock, I can understand that. But honestly, I don't think backers. Yeah, but there's so much good stuff. Yeah, I don't in think here. backers are going to be complaining at all because it's fantastic. 
I hope not. I, I, I hope they like what we've done. I, you know, I, I, I try to always incorporate a lot of history. So we've got a pretty long article covering the history of the actual witch trials, um, which does not always jive well with, uh, Lovecraft subscription of, but, you know, we try mm-hmm. to integrate both of them together. Yeah, of course. Well, and I was also try not- to always, yes. Well, people should not think that, that this is just a history article. Um, this is chock full of game information as well. There's, there's two sections in here that I'm, I'm just pouring over. Uh, one is building a better witch, which we just, and, and how you can create your witches, you know, in, in your game and the, uh, the gods, the witch gods. Yeah, that was fun to look at. I, I tried to pull up with the, uh, from the fiction and a little bit from history, what what gods the witches might actually have worshipped, if you want to go with, depending on what theory of where witchcraft come, came from, um, to give you, I mean, once you know what deity the cultist is worshipping, that tells you what sort of cultist you've got. And, right. You know, instead of just giving them a list of spells, give them sort of a culture to draw from, um, you know, are they based on Hyperborean mythology or, you know, new old, English witchcraft or, you know, sort of reinterpreted that worship of Diana or whatever. Um, so we've got, you know, it's, there's there, whatever we, I mean, yeah, I'm a history buff, so there's a lot of history, but it's always written from the point of view of how it'll enhance a game, not just from the point of view of, I like to talk about history. Um, you know, so we've both, got, you know, they're our, both awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, so well, combining like the two is a perfect idea, by the way. Well, you know, finding places where history aligns with Lovecraft is also fun, you know, like finding a reference in the witch trial, testimony where someone talks about what sounds like a rat thing right. that's great <laughs> or you know when when asked who the witch was consorting with says it was you know like a dog but it walked on its hind legs it was at the head of a man i mean if you can't figure out what that was keeper uh right mm-hmm. it's was that dog like creature in the, in the graveyard i don't know um and then we also sort of i did a very long overview of all the witches that have shown up in lovecraft country um, either in Lovecraft or in the scenarios, which was, and as I noted in the beginning, you know, there may be way too many witches, so feel free to prune some down. Because uh, <laughs> there are a lot, you know, and it's sometimes impossible to make everything between Lovecraft and our various RPG authors work. And certainly if you try to squeeze in Durlith, you're getting a pretty full, full lot there, but I'm just flipping through the, the PDF there. Now, the gods of witches is a lot of fun trying to figure out what the, the names the witches might use for their gods and what that tells us about where they came from too. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Yeah, this is oh, man. it's a plethora of information. Yeah, I'm, I'm pouring through this. It's, it's just great. Yeah, all the stuff. you know we try to list all of the locations that might be important to witches in Lovecraft Country. And there's a little fake historical document about Goody Fowler from a history of Arkham. <laughs> which oh my god, I, I love Dan side. I'm reading the sidebar for the Vorish sign. Oh, where? Oh yeah, where's that? That's so that got the witches. Uh, yeah, it's at the it's at the near the end of that article, page thirty-eight. Uh-huh. Yes. Oh man, so good. Yeah, there's one of the illustrations that the black man is nice and creepy with got his hooves and everything. Yeah, it's very cool. Um, anything else you want to talk about? Um, just looking through. Uh, yeah, we talked about rat things and where they, what, how to make them worse. Um, that was fun. Oh, there's also an article by Graham Price, um, about the so-called blue spot or where the witch would suckle. Oh yeah, um, they're familiar, right? And that is, he's Graham is a physician and or spoke at least 
covers it from a physician's sort of point of view, but also offers a lot of game ideas. So no it's uh, that's really interesting. I have to read that one. Yeah, colonial folk magic—the actual magic that people did in the colonial period. Um, even people who were, you know, oh, witches are really bad, so I'm going to cast a spell to stop them. Right. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But that's, it also informed what people, you know, discovered when they were trying to catch witches. You know, we, we talked about the dried cat, the sort of scenario seed. Um, oh, there's also a description of the tome of evil sorceries done in New England of demons of no human shape, which is a mouthful. I was going to bring that one up in a second, yeah. That's, a, that's one of the greatest titles. Yeah, it's a man. long one. That was based on a fragment of Lovecraft's at Durlith appropriated so i tried to push it back to what lovecraft was assuming because derleth set for some reason thought that the, that book with that title should be written in like eight, 1910 or no i think 1802 but i tried to push it a little back toward the lovecraft there the connection of witches and fairies i mean witches and ghouls oh, that giving away the secret there <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's a, I was, it was always fun to use a quote from the, the Midsummer Night's Dream in an article from <laughs> That's great. Yeah, which is hollow where we have a new monster and then the scenario, which is there. And oh, the, uh, the last part, of course, is the annotated scenario bibliography with all of the scenarios for the region I could think of that had witches in them one way or another from the first scenario, which witches, which I think was in Dagon issue number six to, uh, Crimson Letters in the seventh edition Cthulhu rulebook. So. What about um, Arkham Gazette issue four? Uh, have you got? Have you set um, a topic for it yet? I did a poll of our Kickstarter backers, and they tied almost a perfect three-way tie for topics between um, Dunwich and the, or sorry, the Hyperboreans, which I will expand out and called say Dunwich as well, and uh, Kingsport and Miskatonic University. And since Miskatonic University has had its own source book, I may. Um, call for articles for Kingsport and Dunwich first, but it would, depending on what article submissions we get, I'll just, you know, I'm, I'm happy to go with either or do a, you know, have it none t- an issue that's not as thematically uh, driven as the previous couple have been. But it, generally I found that if you give people a, an idea to write on it, it provoke and it gets more submissions than just saying, write about whatever you want. And the people go, I don't know what to write. Um, but everyone should submit. So are you uh, planning on having the call for submissions out before this is released or, or before the – Yeah, I think I'll, I'll, I'll probably put it out when the as I'm getting close to getting the general release so people can – you know, just so I can start working on, <laughs> working on issue four. Um, and we had some material we actually had to cut from this issue because it was too long uh, that we'll be reusing. We're also revamping um, the original issues one and two. Um, and put, we'll put those out eventually, hopefully sooner rather than later on, and drive through RPG in slightly revised form with maybe a little bit expanded content and um, a re- redone layout work from Chris to replace my rather hacky attempt. Well, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. But we're trying to get our first... As a, as a collector, I would love to have them all look uniform and have that old-school yeah. Chaosium look to them. That, that'd be cool. Yeah, I tried to emulate it as best I could, but my, my layout skills are subpar. No, no, it's, it, wasn't it was bad. always awesome. Yeah, it wasn't bad. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't set yourself short there. Well, but, I mean, I didn't realize that it could be this close to what it was. You know what I mean? Um, it, it's yeah, no, I mean, you can do amazing stuff. I'm looking at some of that old school Renaissance stuff for D&D. Right. You can get pretty close to whatever you know they were doing in 1982 with a reasonable facsimile. 
Yeah, the, uh, the, the, what really seals it is again, the Cristoforo font though. That, that is. Well, that was happy. Uh, yeah, that was, I'm glad I came back. Yeah, I am too. I, we have it as well. We use it and it, it is fantastic. It, it's just a great, um, it's a great resource to have when you're doing stuff like this. Another Kickstarter that's not quite completed yet. <laughs> yeah, it's still, still ongoing, <laughs> it's still, but at least he's got yeah. a usable product out that you can. Yeah, that was, I mean, of. there's a functional version yeah. of it, so it's not. Yeah, it's not a final version because there are some serif versions of Cyrillic letters that aren't done yeah, yet. But I, I, can I think the, the italic version is still under development as well, but oh well. Yeah, but it's got all the major letters you might ever need for English. So. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's fantastic. Um, if you haven't looked into that, you should check that out as well. Um, but anyway, uh, Brett Kramer. Thank you very much sure, hello. for having us. Thank oh. you for having me. Yeah, yeah, no yeah, worries. For I'm glad your internet. Uh, Sorry about my. No, I'm glad it. I'm glad it cooperated enough to get a coherent topic out of you at least. You know, was very worried there for a few yeah, minutes. I could tell <laughs> you dropped about four times <laughs> at once, but it's all good. Uh, yeah, we got it in. We're all good. The uh, the 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 little one hasn't uh, awoken yet, so she's being tended to as we speak. Oh, you lucky man. The homunculus has risen. The homunculus has risen. All right. Well, uh, anything else you want to let um, users know? How do we get a hold of you? Um, well, we've got a blog, which is sentinelhillpress.wordpress.com. I may have to upgrade to something more professional at some point. Um, and then we also have a Google Plus group and a, a neglect, sorely neglected Facebook group because um, I've forgotten my password again. And uh, I've got a Twitter feed. I have 12 followers. Which is <laughs> Sentinel Hill PRS because I ran out of letters. Where we, I generally post links to either the blog or the Google Plus group. But and uh, I'm also on yogsothoth.com and the Scatonic University uh, podcast website. There is Winston P. Uh, All right. Oof. Well, Brett, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. We really appreciate sure, it. Thanks for having yeah, me. No problems, man. Sorry about Keeper Dan's terrible demise. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you'll deal with it. <laughs> Hopefully, next episode we'll have Dan and Chad back as well. Yeah. If you can escape from the wilds of Maine, I've heard terrible things of what it does to people. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> well, evidently, uh, you know, madness. There's no internet in Maine, so he's <laughs> that alone. I've been having. Let me just say, having been to Maine, that is not that is not wrong. <laughs> That's par for course in Maine. <laughs> Yes, I, I, when you're descending you know, the 12,000 steps to the benighted chambers of Cyclopean Terror beneath <laughs> Chesun Cook or whatever that town was right. and uh, the thing on the doorstep, it's, you know, the Wi-Fi reception is pretty spotty. Yeah, it's not going to be the <laughs> Well, that's what he gets for going up there to perform uh, unseemly rituals all day long. So there you go. <laughs> Indeed. All right, Brett, we really appreciate having you. Sure. Thanks for having me. Let me promote the... The Gazette, and I hope I've not forgotten any of our wonderful authors, and if I have, I'm very sorry. No worries. We want to hear from our listeners, and we have lots of different ways you can reach out to us. Our main contact email address is feedback at mu-podcast.com. We also have a Twitter account at MU underscore podcast, and you can join our IRC channel on the feedback page of the website. We have a Providence, Rhode Island voicemail number at 401-400-0MUP. That's 401-400-0687. Or you can use our SpeakPipe link on located on the website. 
Ask a question, leave us a liner, and say who you are, and I'm enrolled at the Miskatonic University Podcast. And we'd love to get a hearty Go Pods for our home team, the Fighting Cephalopods. Our website is mu-podcast.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode at mu-podcast.com slash 83. That's the number 83. Our forums are at mu-podcast.com slash campus. Come and join the community and be a part of the conversations. And we want to give a hearty thank you to our patrons. Thank you for your support. Yes, thank you very, very much. And thank you for joining us for another episode. Class is dismissed. The Call of Cthulhu role-playing game is property of Chaosium, Inc. The written works of H.P. Lovecraft are held in the United States public domain. All other works mentioned in this podcast are the property of their respective owners. Original content of this show is copyright of the Miskatonic University podcast under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial share-alike license. Also, um, I wanted to let everyone know that uh, Murph and Dan are going to be doing a one-hour live show on Friday uh, noon in the uh, El Apogee Room. Apogee Room? This is at uh, Apogee. Apogee. El Apogee Room. (laughs) Um, I think it would be like L'Apogee. Okay. L'Apogee. It's a, it's a, say it. He says it much more uh, French-like. He does. It sounds I had very French. Three years of French, so I go for it, bro. L'apogee. Whoa! I'm nice. currently working on my translation of the Book of Ibon. I'm sure the spells will come out just right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not. They, we do want to let folks know that this is a a lunch lunchtime slot. Um, so hopefully, uh, it's at uh, Necronomicon, people, by the way. Yeah, no. at Necronomicon. Um, I didn't realize that Dan was going to Necronomicon. <laughs> I, I think I think we need to read that one all over again and, and fix that yeah. so it doesn't is say that, Dan. Was this, and, was this supposed to be from Chad?